penultimate part of Dangerous Faith. And we're going to read these uh, verses from Acts 18, verses 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go on to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius, Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making up a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involved questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. The crowd then turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him up in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Dangerous faith. Dangerous faith. We're going to watch part eight of uh, these video series that Open Doors have produced, uh, exploring a little bit more about this passage. Thank you, Mike. The Apostle Paul. That's how we think of him. His name was Paul and his job was an apostle. It's a very holy sounding job. He did other things, of course. He wrote letters, thought grand theological thoughts, but they were all holy things as well. But Acts gives a broader picture. In Acts 18, Paul the traveler arrives in Corinth and in verses three and four, there's an interesting little detail about him. He had a trade. He was a tent maker. We don't think about this much because we prefer to focus on the theologian and the church planter. But the thing is, you can't have one without the other. Without his ability to travel and earn a living, Paul would have had no one to write to, and possibly even not much to say. In the ancient world, tent makers worked with a range of materials, not just canvas, but leather as well. 
So like a lot of craftsmen before and since, Paul was versatile. And he was also able to travel. All he needed was his bundle of tools, knives, awls, sharpening stones, needles, thread, and carrying that, he could travel from city to city and earn a living. There were two reasons why people like Paul needed to be mobile. The first was that he consciously decided to take the gospel on the road. He was a traveling evangelist and teacher. And the second reason is that because he was a traveling evangelist and teacher, he was always getting kicked out of places. That's how he arrived in Corinth, in Acts 18. He'd first been kicked out of Philippi and then driven out of Thessalonica and Berea by mobs. But in Corinth, he found a home and a workshop with a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. Like Paul, they were tent makers. Like Paul, they were followers of Jesus. And like Paul, they too had been kicked out. In their case, thrown out of Rome on the orders of the Emperor Claudius. We can imagine their living conditions. Corinth was full of shops set around small squares or markets where artisans could ply their trade. Generally, the owners lived above the shop. Priscilla and Aquila probably rented a shop with a room above it. They would have slept in the upper room and Paul, well, Paul probably slept in the workshop. So that's the origin of the church in Corinth. Three exiles gathering together in a tent maker's workshop. They didn't have a church building. The early church, whether in Rome or Jerusalem or Corinth, met in domestic settings. There were no official public church buildings as such. For most of the first three centuries of its life, the Christian church was a house church. Sometimes Christians went to the synagogue, but they were soon exiled from those meetings. Instead, they met in ordinary places. Houses, tenement buildings, apartments, workshops. Acts tells us that the converts of Paul and Priscilla and Aquila eventually start meeting in the house of a man called Justus. But before that, when there was, was just a handful of them, the first meeting place must have been in that workshop itself. So imagine an early church service in Corinth. They would meet early in the morning or late at night on the first day of the week. They had to meet early outside working hours because Sunday was an ordinary day. And these were ordinary working people. The tools would be put away. The floor swept, the shutters closed, the room lit by the smoky oil lamps. And they would sit there on mounds of leather hides or bales of canvas or the coils of rope. And there in that very ordinary space, they would share extraordinary things, the bread and the wine and the stories about Jesus. That's the other thing. They had no Bibles. They might have had some copies of letters or parts of what we call the Old Testament, but, but they didn't have this, a book with all the official bits in it. They were still writing that. What they had was stories, the things about Jesus that they'd heard and remembered and passed on, and for many of them, what they'd actually seen. It's a picture of church that many Christians around the world would recognize today. Today, the most common place for secret believers to worship is in a flat or a house. So let's picture one of those meetings, today's secret church. It happens in an ordinary house. Individuals arrive one by one at intervals so as not to draw too much attention. They gather in darkened rooms, the windows covered. People sit on the floor, no sermon, no loud music. And like Paul's church, no one has a Bible with them. They might have Bibles at home, kept secret and hidden, but no one carries a Bible with them in public. Instead, they have the Bible in here, in the head and in the heart. There are churches like that all over the world, in Somalia, in Iran, in Vietnam, in China, anywhere where Christians cannot meet openly and in public. 
Sometimes the problem is not secrecy, but exile. Many Christians find themselves like Priscilla and Aquila, exiled from their home. In Erbil, in Iraq, one group of displaced Christians has their church in a tent, in the middle of a small square. Paul would really have felt at home. Their former church building is some 45 miles away in a place now occupied by Islamic State militants, but they've learned to improvise. And this is what their church leader says. We have our prayers and services in exactly the same way as we did in our village. So in this way, we remember our church and our village. He says, of course, I desire to go back to my church, the place I grew up in, but if I'm called to serve in the desert, I can still serve there. From sand, I can make a church. When you have a dangerous faith, you have to be prepared to live on the move. Jesus, after all, was always calling people to movement because it's only when you move out of your comfort zone that you find out how strong your faith really is. The early church learned that. They learned that because Jesus was always with them, their church could meet anywhere. Their Bible was in their heads and in their hearts. For the persecuted church, the same is true. One of the things which Open Doors does is supply the persecuted church with Bibles, but the words never stay on the page. I've met many Christians from the persecuted church who can recite huge chunks of the Bible from memory. In one African country, I visited a safe house where Christians were learning huge parts of the Bible and were able to recite it by heart. Why? Because they were preparing to move, to return to their homes, where it might be dangerous to have a physical copy of the Bible. So they carried it inside them. And because they carried it in their heads, they also carried it in their hearts. Perhaps around the world, we've become too reliant on external helps to our faith. You know, we need our purpose-built buildings. We need our finely bound Bibles. We need our worship band. We don't have to remember the Bible. We can just look it up. And we can easily get obsessed by the ABCs, attendance, buildings, cash. The early church was more interested in the D, the daily life, discipleship, danger, maybe even the desert. Because with the right outlook, you can build a church from sand. Some good food for thought in there. How is your Bible reading and memory? How is your tent making? One of the things, uh, not to, to supplant particularly what uh, we've heard in the video, but just a, a couple of thoughts that, that I take from this passage, uh, just in, in way of complementing. Is, is reading through it, there's, there's just a lovely bunch of people mentioned. There's obviously Paul and Aquila and Priscilla. There's Silas and Timothy and a few others, Justice, Crispus. People, people. It's great to see you, and I, I know pretty much, don't test me, but uh, I know pretty much all of your names if my mind's working properly uh, on the door. People, names, followers, witnesses. That in the story of Acts, we recorded some of them of people like you and I who are followers of Jesus in their place, 
in their workplace, either in tent making or in their homes. Remember that, that there was this kind of household church established in Corinth, just a little bit south of Athens, that a place, a space was opened up to say, believers can gather. We're privileged to have this building and, and we, we delight in it. It's a great place of witness and presence in the high street. But it shouldn't just be the focus of our faith. That house groups of those gathering, those family meal times when you gather, not maybe with just your family, but also with, with uh, brothers and sisters and invite others in, is also a pioneering edge of mission, of witness. And through the names that we've heard of Aquila and Priscilla, of Paul, Timothy and Silas, kingdom things happen. In, uh, in, in a week on Wednesday, we're gathering in a church night, to, and I kind of mentioned this just a little bit earlier, to think a little bit about how we as a fellowship, as believers on the move, take some more steps in witnessing, in, in, in this mission in a, of dangerous faith, of kingdom bringing. That will involve, I hope, some things where we gather together formally and as uh, under the kind of the, the label of Camden Baptist Church, but also of how do we do it? Of not just leaving it to the few and the some, but how are we all as disciples, witnesses, to keep on bringing the gospel into this age? Dangerous faith. Dangerous because it changes us. Dangerous because it, it upsets the status quo. Dangerous because it involves us taking that risky next step. And dangerous because it begins to change things, change our community. We're seeing that already, but more, Lord. Dangerous because it's confronting the way things are and the ideologies and the sense of which this world says, we've got it sorted. Dangerous because it still speaks prophetically into the now. It's not surprising that so many institutions and people are losing trust in these things that have been the pillars and foundations of our society for decades. But the foundation of Jesus is still strong and trustworthy and true. So there's people and names, sisters and brothers like you and I. It isn't just about the leadership team and knowing our names and saying, they're flying the flag for us. Part of our role is to equip you, sister and brother, in all that God has called you to be in the shop and in the home, in the family, wherever it is. And the other thing, just by way of underlining, it's Aquila and Priscilla. That's kind of Paul's first introduction to them, but, but it actually shifts as you read in other places, in letters in Corinth and other places. It becomes Priscilla and Aquila, just as one of the things to underline that, that actually, whether with a sing, people in a single or married, we're called to serve, and also the role of women in ministry is writ large for us here in the scripture. No one is discounted, no one is sidelined, no one is said, sit this one out, thanks. The task is too important, the calling too precious, the time into the now. Those are my few words to add to the video. If dangerous is a funny word to use, Stay off the dangerous roads. Avoid that dangerous person. Don't light the firework, it's dangerous. 
But there's something about the gospel. When we link it with dangerous, that we kind of think, that's a weird connection. Isn't, isn't it strange? But actually, there's something about the, the faith of God, the dangerous aspect of Jesus that confronts and challenges and provokes. And we see it in the lessons of the persecuted church that, that those who have that genuine faith, that love for Jesus, are seen as threats. And we hear the stories of persecution of saying, stop. But what the, gospel, what the Lord has put inside us, what the Lord is doing in us, is revolutionary and transforming and dangerous and good. When we confess Jesus as Lord, when we say he is my savior, I will follow him before all other powers and authorities, all other agendas, all other friendship circles, I will follow him. I'll dedicate my life to him. I will be his because he is mine. It's dangerous. That's our prayer for us and our sisters and brothers. We want to share the Lord's Supper together, communion, a simple meal, but one which 